Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey listeners, Becky here. A quick note before we start. We recorded this episode before the passing of Ivan Reitman on February 22nd, 2022, which is why we don't mention it. We're sorry for his loss, but we are grateful that he left behind so many movies for us to enjoy. As always, thank you for listening, and on with the show. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. Welcome to season four of A Year in Film, and boy, oh boy, is this going to be a doozy. Now, this year, we really struggled to narrow down the list of movies for the years we wanted to talk about. Discussions were cordial, but don't think they weren't intense and that we can't wait to share our favorite movies and honestly fantastic guests for 1973, 1985, 1999, and 2010. But let's start at the very beginning, like you do. Today, we're going to look at two movies in a genre that would have made money no matter what exploitation. But before we get into those, let's talk about movie trends in general in 1973. This is, I mean, you can look at any year like a turning point <laughs> for something, but like this year has got some turning, some serious turning points in them. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, it's a big year for like black exploitation, for instance. Uh, it didn't start this year, but this is kind of the year where it goes totally it explodes arguably maybe drives itself into the ground uh, by <laughs> producing so many movies i mean this is the my big one is this is the year of the exorcist right? oh sure yeah yeah it's the exorcist but like it's where horror and pornography collide in this you know very wet <laughs> yes. dream for a lot of um exhibitors where you could theoretically go see a legitimate x-rated film in a kind of high profile yeah museum. yeah a lot of yeah. those same movie theaters were playing black exploitation too. Yeah, but and I actually had this conversation about porn with weirdly with my partner because he was like, "Oh yeah, I yeah, know it started with Debbie Does Dallas," and I was like, "No, my no. friend, that is '78, and I know because of the television show yeah. Deep Throat." I mean, certainly one of the films that we talk about today. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's iconic for porn. Yeah, and we're going to talk about it on the podcast. Uh, we're going to have a porn are we, we porn are, expert. <laughs> yeah, we are. It's also like I think what's what we're going to be talking about today. I, there's the like European exploitation that is like flowing over stuff like Jess Franco, which I think inspired a lot mm -hmm. of our first movie. That they, yeah, it's just like or like I'm Curious Yellow, you know, those <laughs> kinds of uh, weird movies that we're also playing, you know, as regularly in a way. It's almost like a boom of yeah weird i mean there's Myst so many mysteries weird of the organism which we sure talked about in <laughs> yeah season three 1971 that's definitely a big one it's weird that you could have a, a scream blackula scream mysteries of the organism to like double bill probably <laughs> at mm -hmm. some weird 42nd street theater or something it's yeah also just like yeah erotic i mean last tango in paris is this year um it's a huge year weirdly which i think we'll touch on a little bit but for the concept of foreign film because of last tango in paris uh the harder they come didn't come out in america yet but it was in jamaica and, and it became this huge sensation and hong kong there's a, i actually read a very interesting article about how movies that you don't think of like i mean it's the the year of enter the dragon but there was a, a week where the films Fist of Fury, Deep Thrust, and The Hand of Death were all in the top five of the box office, <laughs> oh, which made people be like, what? Because, um, yeah, they were just like poorly dubbed Hong Kong movies. We're definitely getting out of the nihilism of 71. Like 71, there's so <laughs> many extremely dark, extremely bleak movies. And here people seem to be having more fun. Like, I mean, the number one at the box office and like the big Oscar winner was The Sting. And that movie's just goofy and super fun. Sure. But I mean, corruption still, right? Like that's everywhere. Yeah, everywhere is like, 
yeah, people are fighting against a bad boss. Like, I mean, it's all these dystopias too. Westworld, Soylent Green. Like, it's it's. But you, Soylent, be, Soylent Green triumph. takes place in 2022. Oh, no, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> be careful what you eat. I guess. Think about that when you eat dinner <laughs> tonight. Mark. Every year, there's always exciting to see who's going to be debuting. And you know, today the names Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, and Ivan Reitman probably ring some bells. But in 1973, they were far from the household names that we all know. In fact, far from the renowned comedy director producer we know him as today. By 1973, Ivan Reitman, Slovak-born Canadian, had faced deportation once already for the filthy movies he'd made because of Canada's stringent obscenity laws, and he would do so again when it came to Cronenberg's shivers in 75. Between these two cataclysms, though, Reitman held fast in his cinematic approach to films, which was very much make them fast, make them cheap, make them violent, and for 1973's Cannibal Girls, take a page out of William Castle's big book of gimmicks. Cannibal Girls. Let's get into it. Now, this <laughs> is this is one I feel like people are very divided on because some people do call it a hidden gem and other people are like, oh, boy. Yeah. And it's it's also some people are like, it's a spoof. And other people are like, no, yeah. it's not. And I'm on the no, it's not. Train. Do you think the people, the people who call it a hidden gem, do you think they've actually seen it? Uh, I think I they get know. excited by who's in the cast. Yeah. And I I, it has that shaggy sort of feel. I also feel like when you're talking about kind of outsider horror, it's better than a lot of those. <laughs> so true. Very maybe true. like if we sat through all of the 1970 whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's I, I think that I'm going to say that both of the films this week are not necessarily my favorite, but I think that they're like watchable oddities. I think when you look at the budget, like this might be mm. the episode where we talk about the two cheapest films sure. ever yeah. on our podcast because Cannibal Girls was made for $9,000 and I don't have an idea of whether that was Canadian or American. That was Canadian from my understanding. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's ridiculous. And then um, the film we're going to talk about later, Flesh for Frankenstein, is 300000 which is gargantuan in comparison to Cannibal Girls, but still very minuscule in terms of a budget for 1973. So when you think about it in that kind of term, it's sort of amazing Mm -hmm. actually. Like the fact that Cannibal Girls was made for $9,000 Canadian, which it looks like that, is is amazing. (laughs) For $9,000, a lot of threats, a lot of conjoling, (laughs) and part of that too was travel because they went to Cannes for this one. But before we get into all of that, Cannibal Girls, who wants the plot? Uh, I'll do it. Uh, I'll I'll let Alicia talk about the uh, fancier one. (laughs) The classier one? Yes. Uh, um, depends on your definition of classy. Uh, Cannibal Girls uh, follows. There's a, eventually kind of a nesting doll structure, but it's it's essentially about a couple traveling in northern Ontario, Cliff and Gloria, played by Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin, uh, who are just looking to have a quiet vacation out of the city. Uh, they're kind of a goofy couple. He's a real <laughs> jerk dud, and she's kind of an airhead. Um, and they come into this town, uh, which has a, a, a sort of a storied history of these cannibal women who uh, murdered people passing through. Uh, but we are told that they are gone now, but there's a restaurant that stands where they used to live. <laughs> Please ask no more questions. Uh, but feel free to make reservations for the restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Let me take yeah. you Only one thing is on the menu. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they're not very good at being... Though, to be fair, the restaurant is creepy almost immediately. They just can't really leave. Uh, they eventually find out, of course, that the, uh, the restaurant is run by a very strange reverend uh, who seems to have a lot it's, of female followers. Scratch it's also your head. like Father John Misty was a time yes, traveler. Yeah, that same yeah. vibe. Uh, very, very strange man. Uh, and then it's, it's actually, I think the structure is actually kind of interesting because you both see the past in a flashback. You don't realize it's a flashback uh, until it ends. And uh, then you also have this structure where you kind of think you're seeing the whole movie end, but then it sort of starts up again and you're revealing all these uh, unusual aspects of what has gone on with them but it's lots of you know running away from cannibals trying to get away there's lots of parts of this movie that they're they're just delightful for me Mm. Um, and especially because this is a very improvised movie there was 13 pages of script and then they improvised the rest and there is a credit here which I've never seen on anything else which it says dialogue in collaboration with the actors you know uh, let me tell you the person who also does it interestingly is early George Romero films because they they're the only other filmmaking group that I know 
did the same thing where they kind of coll- considered themselves a collective. So uh, Night of the Living Dead has kind of been sorted out now because I think it's so famous. But if you look at the next two George Romero films, which are kind of dramas, Season of the Witch, and I think the other one's called A Taste of Vanilla. Um, oh, I thought maybe the amusement park. Oh, amusement park maybe too. Been yeah, in that and it's why some of them kind of fell out of rights because they, like I think Ivan Reitman believed that that it was a big collaboration and that necessary, like taking the big roles was not necessarily. Even though these guys obviously did still have the pretty traditional film roles. This also was a profit share, so like yes. er, nobody got paid until everybody got paid. Although this movie made money, yeah, which is I'm wild. I'm kind of curious because they don't really like they they love talking about how much money it cost them, but they don't like talking about how much money they made. And I'm like, I think it's because you made a pretty penny in the end, probably. Yeah, I, w- I always like to think that maybe like the origin of Shit's Creek is that <laughs> that character oh, did sure. this film and then bought the rental yeah. like the f- rental franchise, mm, the jumbo video. Uh, it's yeah, it's mm-hmm. interesting. And, and I mean, it's like more, like more power to them. But yeah, to know that they, because I think that they said it all, by the end of it, it all ballooned to about 50 grand. I think they got 50 grand from Arkoff when they sold it. And then he said they had 20% of the gross, which is like, that's good. Okay, Arkoff. Reitman and his producing partner Goldberg were in the hole for this movie from the very beginning, and their mm-hmm. plan was always to get enough money to finish it and then go sell it at the Cannes Marketplace. So they already had an investment from Bellevue Passé, and they borrowed a bunch of money from family. So Reitman goes to Cannes with a bunch of posters to sell the movie without the print, expecting Goldberg to finish it and then send it with enough time to go through customs and make at least one of the three screening times that the Canadian government had set up for them. So Goldman gets most of the material to the lab to make the deadline, and then he He's called into the offices of Bellevue Passé, the main investors, who then say, if you don't sign this document that gives us the North American distribution rights, we won't let the lab release the print. And of course, they need those rights to be able to sell the movie at all. Yeah. And of course, they know there's a deadline and that Reitman is already in can. What they don't know is that Goldman hasn't delivered two of the 12 reels to the lab yet. So he threatens to drive the negatives off a cliff if they don't release the print. And he is apparently, according to Reitman, like, wild and just like, I have worked on this thing for two years of my life. Do not test me. Bellevue Passé backs down. The print gets to Cannes, where Reitman gets it seen by Arkoff in a screening. He watches it, says... I'll let you know. And then Reitman doesn't hear anything back. So he hunts down Arkoff at his hotel. He gets a meeting, and then they sell the picture for $50,000 up front and 20% of the profit after the break, which is wild because that's the kind of deal that doesn't happen now. Yeah, yeah. And the wild thing is, is it's very much, I mean, Ivan Reitman obviously made a lot of great movies, and we know him for that, but his big break is producing Animal House. So yeah. obviously it's like, a, you know, knowing the comedy people and and pulling off this movie is like a big feather in his cap towards the like Lampoon people and the SNL people, which is kind of fascinating. I think Can is, you know, obviously a big part of the story. But whenever I research this film, the other film festival that always comes up is the one in Satige, yeah. um, Spain, which uh, would have been established in the late 60s, like 67. So pretty early in its run, this film played in competition, whereas in Cannes, it's just at the market. It's not in competition. It's for sales. But, you know, Reitman um, actually uh, submitted this to the Satige Film Festival. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I, I don't think it's I, I think Stige. So. It's not Stige. I don't know. It's Spanish. It would be Catalan. Though, yeah. So, I mean, as soon as you, I just, please don't. I only ever me. hear Americans saying it. So they all just say Stige. Yeah, I know. Um, I have been there. It's a yeah. lovely place. Um, so you would think <laughs> I would know how to say it. But uh, yet I do not. But anyway, it won. So it actually, Andrea Martin and uh, Eugene Levy won Best Actress and Best Actor, which considering how much they kind of troll themselves for the own performances is sort of lovely but this is the same film festival that was a launching pad for Cronenberg's you know body horror in the 70s as well like Canadian films went to Satish in the 70s and became known worldwide for you know just kind of a really unique brand of horror and the great uh, story Alicia that I think Becky maybe dug up is that he did not know apparently it was the Canadian government sent the movies there and and it what? took him till they were giving him an anniversary award for Ghostbusters. They also trotted out these ancient awards to give to him for. Uh, I think it that was never yeah that he up? ever picked up for Andrew Martin and uh, Eugene Levy because he he had no idea that it had won. That's so because <laughs> I guess he took off. Yeah, and, I mean oh. it. 
it kind of makes sense. I think that festival doesn't take off no, until the mid yeah. 70s, specifically with Shivers. And it seems more um, powerful than ever, right? Like, it just keeps... This, yes, yeah. yeah, oh yeah. Like, I think this year, Lamb mm. won, which is a pretty huge international hit for 2021. Um, yeah, no, I mean, if, if you're ever looking to travel to Spain <laughs> and have a tax write-off, if you're in the film business, just attend this festival for a few days. That may be exactly what I did. I actually didn't go to the festival. I had a different <laughs> tax write-off. <laughs> like, this is this is my taxploitation tip for 2022. I think people who are looking to see the Eugene Levy and the Andrea Martin performances won't be disappointed as much as they like yeah. lampoon themselves. Um, as, I mean, Eugene Levy has talked about like at the time, like he was fresh out of theater school. Mm. It was the first thing he'd done out of theater school. And he's like, at the time, you think you're doing great improvising because you can just keep going. And that does not mean no. good improvisation. He's actually talked about how he, he would love to do this again because he now he would <laughs> know what to do with the character and how to improvise. It. I mean, it'd be a very different story at that point. There's some moments here that are not without charm, which are fully mm. improvised, <laughs> like watching Andrea Martin talk nicely to their car so it will work is really lovely and really sweet don't be sarcastic oh i wasn't sarcastic wasn't sarcastic wasn't sarcastic or wasn't sarcastic it's gonna start eh? go ahead we love you love you love you She's very charming. I mean, no matter what you say about the performances, I think what I see is her her star power um, and it's very nascent stage. Uh, I barely recognized Eugene Levy. Like he's really kind of disguised with this haircut or lack of haircut, Weird tinted a mustache, glasses. and <laughs> yeah, and like a, a McCabe and Mrs. Miller esque <laughs> yes. fur coat. But that's how it seems like he was old forever, yeah. is because you couldn't see his face for like half yeah. his life. It was obscured by massive facial hair in the afro. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Reitman says he loves the the song he sings was completely uh, improvised. Yeah, the, I think the thing that's weird, like I think it, sitting down to it, if you like Reitman and Martin and Levy, is it's not very funny. But nor is it mm-hmm. pushing the humor very hard. Like it is a light horror movie is essentially it, like yeah, it, it kind of spoofs it's not very violent no. either. And it's mostly making fun and... of like that men are losers. That seems to be like the main joke, the only real existent joke is that like look at all these dud beta males <laughs> falling for it over and over. What do you do? I, I'm in the ice cream business. He's president of Truck 12. Okay, girl, that's enough with the jokes, eh? Okay. I, uh, I got a route, you know, driving the truck. There was a real element when watching this that kind of harkened back to Let's Scare Jessica sure. to Death, mm. which is, we talked about last season for 1971 and was one of my favorite films of the podcast. This sort of like, you know, there's these female characters who are under the thumb and under control of men. And then these sort of mysterious, ghostly women come mm. in and kind of, you know, shake things up. Um, I think the, one of the issues with this film is it doesn't know what it is and that's okay. Yeah. Like I, I think the bar should be really low when you judge this film. Um, what's unfortunate is it's just got some of the biggest names in the Canadian yes. film industry. So you, you expect more and that does a disservice to it. But I think any fan of horror, any fan trying to understand Canadian cinema, this is an essential text. Yeah, And I also think that there's like, I think that there's a real almost cinematic verve to it, which again, researching, I figured out is mostly that the original cut was so bad because it had very little horror or gore or scares or kills. So they went back and reshot a bunch of it. Tons of reshoots. But those reshoots, yeah. that's where I'm like, this is, he's making like a Jess Franco movie because there's like a weird Igor and it's all these dream because they couldn't match continuity. It's all these dreamy voids where people are being killed and it's uh yeah it's pretty good and i think both movies we're going to talk about are kind of gore movies in the end too they're kind of herschel gordon lewisy because it's people you know eating a beef liver <laughs> covered in red paint <laughs> sort of well, situation one of the things arkov added to this which we have to talk about because the poster for this is fantastic mm. i would not be ashamed to have this poster up in my bathroom because mm. it's fantastic um possibly in my dining room but it has uh, <laughs> a thing where they used to play or they used they would buzz a bell when things got too sexy 
sexy or too gory so the squeamish yes. could hide their eyes. It's a very William Castle-y um, sort of gimmicky sort of thing. Um, but and the, those are cops' idea. Yeah, this right. is our cops' yeah. idea, totally. Yeah. But uh, but that too is that people would close their eyes and their imagination mm. would tell them it was way gorier and way worse oh, than yeah. it was. Right? It's, a, it's a great idea, and I wish I, I am shocked. Uh, and please feel free to steal this, anyone. I, I would probably suggest Tiff do it. Somebody do that. Give me a screening yeah. of Cannibal Girls with the klaxon howl and the <laughs> ding dong bell that everything's safe. That's cute. Tiff was involved in. A, I remember working at Tiff when there was the restoration of this film, which is also partnered with Films mm-hmm. We Like, which is one of our friends of Hollywood Suite. We show um, a lot of their catalog. They're a wonderful distributor. And I remember there's like a, there was a lot of issues with this film because it had basically turned mm. the elements had turned pink essentially. Um, which makes sense for this year, like 73. And then probably given, you know, just how exploitation it is and the fact that they're like, this film was held hostage at the lab. I can't imagine much in the way of film preservation occurred in the 70s for this particular, Mm, all these prints that were made and potentially the negative or (laughs) inter-negative. Arkoff is Um, not the film preservationist. He doesn't have the salt mine. (laughs) No, but it it looks good. Um, It looks good today. Like make Mm -hmm. sure what I would say to listeners is make sure you're watching like a a qualified version. And this is streaming. We've had this on Hollywood suite. It's also currently streaming on Amazon prime. Um, I don't think it'll ever come off because it's CanCon. I think Shudder has had it a time or two. Um, But just make sure you're finding the version that doesn't look blood red because it's not supposed to look like that. If anything, I just want all of those women's fashions. You can watch this for the fashion because I want everything those girls are wearing. It's oh, totally. All There's a lot. Of, it has a lot of like a real, you know, Russ Meyer lady vibe with all their cool hippie yeah. outfits. Um, and I mean, there is gratuitous boobs at the start. Too. That's kind of what harkened back to Let's Scare Jessica mm-hmm. to death as well. That sort of like um, yuppie meets hippie. Because that's really what's happening where like the summer of love is over and the hippie culture is morphing into this more corporate um, entity. And certainly we're going to talk a lot about hatred of hippies with flesh for Frankenstein because that is essential to that (laughs) storyline. But I I definitely see by 73 this idea of like, you know, bankers are wearing bell bottoms (laughs) essentially. Mm-hmm. Looking back at Reitman's kind of uh, historical over, like everything he did, and like as we talked about now, he's known for comedy. Um, I love that he and Dan Goldberg had no pretension whatsoever that they were going to win Oscars. Mm-hmm. Like that's not what they wanted to do. They just wanted to work in the film industry at any cost, and the cost for them was to do schlock. They yeah. were like, that's how we're going to get in. And this kicked the door open for Canadian schlock. Suddenly this put Canada on the market as, hey, the government's going to give you money to make whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, we're just kind of starting up right now with government funding for film and having any sort of film uh, film industry um, and what that would then become with the tax shelter era, which is coming on just like a little bit later. But if you look at a movie like uh, Death Weekend, which um, I like actually quite a bit. Uh, it's like the next level up from this. And then you see Shivers, which he just produced and and things like that. Like you definitely see someone growing in taste for schlock, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Like he's understanding more what people like and how to keep the plot going. And then it's not just like, oh, I have to have someone hit with an a- axe handle here. It's okay, this element leads to this element leads to this. I mean, Death Weekend is such a great example of that because it's unfortunately a rape revenge. Uh, Brenda Vaccaro is fan-fucking-tastic in it. It's a tasteful rape revenge? Well, like Listen, similar uh, to Becky, It's nuanced. It's nuanced. Becky, uh, a Japanese poster for this film hangs in my home, so I support okay. you in your yeah. thing. What is the other t- so glad. just really so our it. listeners know what is the other title it's is it house by the yes, lake the house by the... the lake yeah yeah it's a real last house a print... on the left ripoff yeah yeah, yeah. And, it's... and like shivers which had a different american mm. title i know that death week i can't remember which one was canadian which I one was think american, but the house by the lake is american and death weekend because death mm. weekend is the japanese title it's really good and you know i think what you're kind of alluding to becky is that they figure out how to bring the art house and how to kind of make Canadian cinema world cinema and stop trying to emulate Hollywood. And that's what became very successful. Yeah. And, and it's worth saying that Goldberg and uh, Reitman, who are the writers and Reitman directed, they started off in sexploitation with films that are essentially lost. The Columbus of Sex and Foxy Lady. The Columbus of Sex was the one they almost got, well, that Ivan Reitman almost sure, got reported yes. for the first time. And those are the ones, I believe that they, they just uh, made, the, they produced and uh, like did cinematography and stuff. They didn't direct or write, uh, unless the person's a total pseudonym. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, 
<laughs> well, it might be. Uh, but um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting because you can see that they they were seeing that sort of maple syrup porn not be the angle uh, for them and, and not mm-hmm. lead anywhere. And, and I mean, it's, it's also very interesting when we talk about like this made his career. Uh, 1973 to, to 1978, I believe, is Animal House. That's a big chunk. So he's still still working for it. It still was a climb. And I, yeah, it's just cool to see a guy. I, Ivan Reitman is kind of weird because I, you, you, it's he has great movies, but he kind of you kind of don't give him credit because it, it's he works with great performers, unfortunately. So I think that they tend to take most of the credit. But to know that he like he yeah he still talks fondly about this movie, even though he doesn't necessarily say it's good, it has a charming attitude about it. But he, unlike many producers, although he made the leap to director. Uh, he's he's a household name. Like if you mm-hmm. say Ivan Reitman to a lot of people, they will know. Oh, what his for sure. Name is. Yeah, and I mean, I was I th- I rudely put on my letterbox that I think that this is his most visually interesting film. But uh, I do think that like that is so mean. I, but I mean, it's because it's got crazy shots in it. He's doing crazy yeah. stuff with the visual language. Yeah. Like normally, he's kind of a handheld. put the camera down guy. And, and, yeah. But I mean, also like I can admit, sure, he invented crazy special effects for Ghostbusters. But uh, yeah, but no, I think that some of the ways this is shot is wild. But yeah, he's uh, it's easy to take him down a peg, but he does have it's because he has many classic movies and it's richer than God and uh, yeah, buys and sells any Canadian that he wants. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's uh, head over to Europe for our next film for something that um, I don't know if the filmmaker is necessarily lauded at this point, but they definitely have a place in cinematic history. We're going to be looking at Andy Warhol's or is it Flesh for Frankenstein? That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bananas, Campbell's soup cans, platinum page boy haircut. Is that what pops up in your mind when I say the name Andy Warhol? How about plentiful nudity and taboo sex? Internal organs? So, so many internal organs. <laughs> well, today we're going to be looking at a movie that is called Andy Warhol's Flesh for Frankenstein. But is it really Andy Warhol's? Let's get into this deeply bizarre movie, which I saw for the first time at 14, and I really, really <laughs> shouldn't have. This is not a movie for 14-year-olds without, like, extended context. Mm-hmm. Alicia, do you want to give us a, a plot summary on this one? It's, it's Frankenstein, but it's not. Sure. I mean, I would argue that this is basically the sexual fantasies of a 14-year-old. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> don't tell 14-year-olds <laughs> to watch this. <laughs> like, this is not a mature, sexy film. No. This That's is what true. 14-year-olds <laughs> might think sex is. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's very loosely based on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I would say a lot looser than the Kenneth Branagh version <laughs> yeah. that we discussed <laughs> a few seasons ago. Um, and... You know, we have Baron von Frankenstein, who is played by um, a very young in one of his, you know, earliest roles, Udo Kier. Uh, and he is married to his sister wife, mm-hmm. um, sometimes refers to as his sister, sometimes his wife. They have two children. And as, you know, the scientist, he's trying to create this super race that he's referring to kind of the perfect Serbian race because mm. he feels that the human race has been degraded. And he's, you know, he's found some people. He's swapping body parts. He cuts the head off one guy, puts it on another <laughs> mm-hmm. dude's body, uh, does the same thing with a woman. And he's going to have them, you know, mate. And they're going to, you know, populate this super race. Um, so there's there's some zombieism here in a way, mm. like zo- the, the actual zombie canon kind of being added to Mary Shelley's story in a way that's not there in the original text. Uh, And meanwhile, you know, there's this really hot farmhand who has a very thick Brooklyn accent, (laughs) which doesn't entirely... Arguably the best grasp of of English of anyone in the entire movie. (laughs) 
It's a real balancing I mean, that's, that's, act. Do you want the correct accents or do you want somebody who's speaking I would English? say that's not arguable. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> My favorite's when he tells the guy who wants to be the priest who becomes the monster. He's like, we grew up together. And the other guy's got like the thick, the thick thickest accent. Has an Austrian yeah. accent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so funny. And, you know, that farmhand is played by Joe D'Alessandro, mm. who I cannot wait to talk about <laughs> yeah. because he's um, an icon of so many different things. <laughs> uh, queer culture of, you know, the war Hall Factory, of Experimental Film, um, of John Waters, of all kinds of things. But um, this farmhand kind of like notices, like he finds his friend's body missing a head <laughs> mm-hmm. and he figures something's up. Um, he gets in... <laughs> <laughs> he gets enmeshed with um, the sister wife because yeah. she's hot to trot and uh, Udo Kier, let's just say, which is also her brother, is not pleasing her in the bedroom. So she's she brings him in as her yeah. like manservant. He then like has he's like serving mutton to the, the, the crew and realizes like, that's weird. That's my friend. But he's a lot taller because yeah. his head is <laughs> yes. on a different body. And it goes there from are great there. moments um, like that. <laughs> like really uh, you're the butler I... to your own dead friend's head on another car. Yes. And he's taller. I really actually love this film. Um, I think like you, Becky, I can't say I was 14 years old, but I was too young for it, certainly. Um, and cert- I would say also didn't have a really robust knowledge at the time of factory filmmaking and Paul Morrissey's um, practice and how Andy Warhol's brand you know, existed in the film world. Um, so I was just really ignorant. But it is, if you like schlock, if you like to laugh, like this is a comedy. Yeah. And I think regardless of what Paul Morrissey says today, and let me tell you, you want to be entertained, just pull up an interview in the last 10 years with this (laughs) fucking madman. Grumpy. Um, Grumpy. A guy who just like, what are you you talking about? Also, I I want you, Alicia, to let yourself off the hook for being ignorant of the factory's films as a teen in the 90s. (laughs) I think you're allowed. You know, Warhol has made a series of films, a lot of experimenting with Edie Sedgwick, with, you know, Cookie Mueller, with, um, God, Candy Darling. I could go on and on. Joe Del Sandro, certainly. And he ends up making three films through Paul Morrissey, one of which, which is really famous, called Flesh, which um, features uh, Joe Del Sandro as a hustler. These are really Paul Morrissey films. Like, if we think of sort of mm-hmm. Warhol as an atelier, However, Warhol's name going on them was marketing. And so when it comes to 1970, I believe this is filmed in 72, mm-hmm. the crowd kind of, you know, the, the factory crowd gets rounded up and they go to Italy because they're going to make a film through Carlo Ponti, who at that time was probably married to Sophia Loren. Mm-hmm. Anyway, big time, big time Italian producer. Something goes awry. And Car- I think Carlo Ponti's involvement is very minimal, if not negligible and maybe non-existent, even though it's on the Wikipedia page. And they decide they're just going to make Frankenstein. They're going to make Blood for Dracula, which is the next year. They kind of film them back to back. It's the same sets. It's some of the same costumes. It's the same crew. They just Paul Morrissey meets. I can't remember if it's Paul Morrissey or the producer meets Udo Kier on an I airplane. I think Paul Morris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Morrissey, yeah. and he's just like you. You're my, you know, and, 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 but he's so beautiful at that time. Yeah, he's yeah. so yeah. beautiful, and one of my favorite Warhol Polaroids of all time is, um, you know, the one time Warhol came to set, which really was once on Blood for Dracula, and he took this great photograph. Just Google it, Udo Kier, Andy Warhol Polaroid, because it's the mm. Blood for Dracula makeup with the fangs, but he's in street clothes, <laughs> and it's it's a great shot. Was oh, that um, the one where he's in plaid? Yeah, yeah, and like trousers. Yeah, Amazing. um, you know. Warhol's very minimally involved. He showed up, he shot some photographs, he went home. Can we also just say, that I just want to interject just for one second, the reason why he was so hands-off with filmmaking at this point was because of Valerie Solanus yeah. uh, shooting him. I was going to say... There's some people who say that, but I mean, I mean, that's fair. You could say that he's hands-off on a lot of things because he's recovering from be- attempted murder. I also think at a certain point that if you look at his art practice, though, yeah. the, the brand... He's just hands-off on everything, kind of. Yeah, because that was coming before the shooting, Mm -hmm. for sure. I I think the films especially, there's like the experimental era where you can tell he made them. And then from then on, the films are other people. 
Yeah, and if you believe Paul Morrissey, he claims that he taught, like basically taught Warhol how to mm, use yeah. a camera, how to use lighting, how to use um, rapid exposure, how to use double exposure, if not quadruple exposure, how to do... like It's really the mise-en-scene is coming from Paul Morrissey, if we are to believe Paul Morrissey, but there's quite a bit backing that oh, up. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, what's crazy is the idea of putting Andy Warhol's name on a film like this, which is much more akin with Cannibal Girls, although it's far more polished than something like you know chelsea girls or um you know the 24-hour films that andy warhol's making and projecting at moma like it's just it's such a different practice as much as i think that sometimes the, the who did what is contentious for these two films we know pretty clearly partially because in italy they tried to claim that antonio margaretti uh, did a lot mm-hmm. of work on them and they were successfully sued for lying by I think the Italian government it was a very yeah, weird thing putting that guy's name on there would have been the equivalent of putting a Canadian yeah, producer to get money, on there right? and then it's like okay here's all your tax dollars so they, they essentially legally proved that Paul Morrissey did everything and, and Udo is the first person to say it too that like you didn't you didn't see anybody else around and I mean it sounds like a weird system once again uh, we're talking about a film that is not quite improvised but written the day before on a legal pad and i think you can really tell that uh, i it's been a minute since i've seen blood for dracula i will say but i think you can tell that blood for dracula was a bit more thought out and uh, and especially in udo's performance because yes. i think i don't think he's bad at speaking english necessarily i think you're handing somebody whose english is a second language his lines right before it's shot and he's struggling a bit with the actual lines and becky could you tell us what your favorite line from flesh for frankenstein is because i saw it in your notes and i was like oh good we both have the same favorite line <laughs> you know what it's not just me because all over the internet this is the one people quote because it is to know death Otto you have to fuck life in the gallbladder I don't know it's, what to do with that. It's like, delivered. Just, it's delivered like Shakespeare by yeah, Pinocchio. Uh, that yeah. line, like it's um, really wonderful. I will say that my favorite is that he uh, says that they need to find a man who responds to women's filthy movements and dirty talk. <laughs> he's he's disgusted <laughs> yeah. by women with large breasts. Which I mean, I mean yeah, we, he's so good. We talk about Joe D'Alessandro, who is openly bisexual, mm-hmm. you know, has multiple marriages. Um, he's such a, a, a queer icon and someone who supported the gay community throughout the late 60s into the 70s and 80s. But Udo Kier is mm-hmm. an interesting figure. And I would really encourage people to see the film from 2021, Swan Song, which mm-hmm. is sort of Udo Kier's, you know, late career. I don't want to say comeback. He's never gone anywhere, but it gives him the sort of dramatic role that he yeah. deserves. And it, it's not the best film, but I was riveted by Udo like Kier as this kind of him. Yeah. yeah, this aging gay man who breaks out of the nursing home to do he's a, a hairstylist. It's 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 quite good. But he's really a he's a gay icon, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Kier, he was openly gay, but it was never really commented on. And I think you see it so much here in Flesh for Frankenstein, more so than Blood for Dracula, where he is openly disgusted by women mm. and it works so well in, in a frankenstein uh storyline camp elements i i will say i i there's somebody in the new york times said that it it drags more than it camps and i kind of agree <laughs> with that uh but uh but i think that the camp moments are definitely how gay him and his little igor seem and how obviously yeah. gay the friend is for joe delisano <laughs> like they're they're in a yeah. like orgy and he, he just keeps cutting to him looking at him uh i love that you said that it was like a 14 year old's version of sex because this is the movie that will also make you go does joe delisano know how to have sex <laughs> like it, <laughs> he might it's not. the yeah, worst I mean... uh least sexy sex scenes and there's like slurping sounds <laughs> it's so just weird. because joe delisano is on the cover of so it's his crotch on the cover mm. of the very infamous sticky fingers album uh, by the Rolling Stones. That is his crotch bulge. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he had been uh, photographed by Richard Avedon. Like, he is... he, And he started as a male model at, like, 15 or 16 after running away from home. Yeah. Um, and ends up at the factory... After running away from jail very, like, is the best. He was at a youth reformatory and he ran away. Uh, he has a tough upbringing. There was, like, a foster home. Yeah. His mother was imprisoned when he was very young. I mean, I love he got... Th- His mother was, like, 15 when she had him, I think. Dropped out of school when he punched the principal, which is a great one. The principal <laughs> okay, was can someone mocking make a his father here, and he punched him. Uh, 
yeah, there's a lot of grim stuff in there, but if you pick the highlights, he's got a real, uh, real interesting life. And I love that this was 3D. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was mostly shown in 3D in 73. It's really the tail end of like where 3D was even marketable, yeah. but it, it lasted a lot longer in Europe. 3D as well as 70 millimeter and those sort of roadshow formats. But like when I was watching this, I was trying to picture like what are the what would the the main 3D effects be? And it was really <laughs> just like every time someone oh, is disemboweled, yeah. it's like their organs are thrown. I at was the gonna center say to go back to our previous film, what you need to know about the 3D is it's 100 percent the Doctor Tongue stuff from SCTV, where like the whole yeah. the whole movie screeches to a halt and somebody goes because <laughs> the yeah. end sequence of this film is almost to me like a ballet composed by Stravinsky. Mm. I could not believe how, and I don't want to spoil for you. Let's just say some people die. Yeah. And they die <laughs> grotesquely. <laughs> but the way that it's choreographed and how Baron von Frankenstein dies and, you know, let's just say maybe a 20-foot pole's involved. Yeah. I'm not it's sure. Great. Great, um, great 3D, I don't want to, to spoil. be honest. So good in 3D. Yeah. Um, and we should give a big shout out to Carlo Rambaldi. Mm. And this is an early film of his. He was, you know, very much based in the Italian film industry at this point. But he built the creatures for, or the creature, for E.T. Mm. He worked on Alien. He built the creature for Possession, which yeah. is very scary and reminded me a lot of this film. The Conan films, the 70s King Kong, like... He is a master, and I think a lot of the special effects in this, like the beating hearts and all the organs, they don't look like a B film. They no, look they good. Look no, my favorite little detail is when the head is decapitated, the eyes yeah. are still moving. I was like, yeah. that's The wild. eyes are still you moving, and it's that. constantly <laughs> gushing a torrent of blood, which I think yeah. are, yeah, oh, you're right. Wonderful effects. And, like, yeah, the, I, I think, like, the unfortunate thing is, I, I like, I just wish... Because it's kind of like Paul Morrissey and this crew got two cracks of like commercial movies, and and I mm-hmm. I prefer I guess uh, Blood for Dracula. So this I one, this one, I don't know, just kind of I don't know. I like it doesn't this one, it doesn't hit quite right for me. But but there I, are I think, moments, yeah. like Joe D'Alessandro <laughs> visibly sighing and turning around with a lizard that was on his butt to show it to the camera to make it 3D for a second. Is, is <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. I mean, I do think, I think you hit it spot on, Cam, is because these films are so back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, it's just more polished, yeah. Blood for Dracula. And I think Udo Kier is a bit more comfortable yeah. in, in his skin in, in this sort of format of a film. But I think this still has... Um, enormous it's such an interesting phrase it's not a bad story yeah for sure and i also it really reminds me of uh italian horror comics which tend to end in in a very similar imagery i won't spoil what happens but it it tends to be like i love it you don't get a happy ending in an Italian horror comic. I also wanted to point out when you're like, this is a good version of Frankenstein. This is a weird mini Frankenstein boom for kind of mm-hmm. unknown reasons. People just got into Spank- Frankenstein because we have, there's the similar, but even less plot heavy, uh, just Franco erotic rights of Frankenstein is this year. Blackenstein is this year. There's- May I make a suggestion sure. for why? If Frankenstein's published in 1832, mm. then it's, Okay, no, that doesn't make sense. I was going to say it's 150th, but it's not. There could be a public domain <laughs> yeah, maybe. situation. I do wonder, because it's like, there's a Michael Sarazen one where Frankenstein is handsome and then turns into a monster. Uh, I love Michael Your uh, Rankin and Bass Mad Monsters is around this time. Young Frankenstein is next year. Love it. Spirit of the Beehive. This Beehive. has to be a public domain thing. Yeah. This has to be a public domain It thing. might be. Or, there's no or way. What, maybe is there, could there be a rights thing with the old movies at this point? Uh, 30, so like the Universal yeah, one. Yeah, I don't know. Because, like, Spirit know. of the Beehive has that Frankenstein, you know, like a Boris Karloff. yeah. I don't know. Anyway, it's just a... It, I can't quite explain it, but I just like... Because I was like, when was Erotic Rites of Frankenstein, which has kind mm-hmm. of a similar Nazi eugenicist Frankenstein, who's like a sadist? Uh, yeah, and it's right around here. And same with even Hammer. Speaking of which, Nazis, um, I was reminded a little bit of Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. Sure. There's a bit of that. For sure. You know, yeah. still our top performing episode of all time. <laughs> there. But um, yeah, I'm also, I was really drawn to sort of the Catholic imagery in sure. this film. And knowing that Paul Morrissey, who is by his own description today, as well as in the 70s, extremely conservative, potentially bigoted, um, and a devout Catholic, mm-hmm. kind of remind me of um, 
Ken Russell in that way when sure. we talked about The Devils, among other Ken Russell films. Uh, Litzomania as well. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of just like, I almost wonder if he was looking at Catholic paintings and sort of animating sure. them. Yeah, definitely that last tableau you're... And it works really well with, if you think about like these paintings from the, you know, the 15th century, the 16th century, they are bloody. There are weird organs. Like it's just so strange. Like it's very, what we consider surreal. The choices for me of when to show nudity versus when to not is really interesting to me. Mm. It's like, you don't mind cutting up all these bodies and we're going to see Joe D'Alessandro's penis, but you're not showing us any of the, uh, these other young men. You've taken the time to carefully tape these like little little clothy sure. and things across them is interesting to me I, like why are you I showing mean, me I, this but not this i think this movie considering it's like it's i think it's hard to read something like flesh suiting his his weird interest in saying it's spoofing but this one is like borderline a comedy of errors about two Agreed. incredibly horny people horny for a very specific purpose goofing Not around horny for each other. yeah goofing around getting the head of a monk then accidentally bringing in the horny guy who's his friend like it, it's kind of a comedy of errors and like the they point. die yeah, in very that. dumb ways because they're just yeah. cruel and i mean the other thing that's weird is like them constantly fawning over these children which spoiler are bad seed evil weirdos <laughs> yeah what is going on with 70s and and children they love like, it they love to be like the kids are much worse than we are <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i think baby boomers sure. became parents and baby boomers i would say are the worst generation <laughs> um i'm gonna get red for that potentially but i don't know my parents were baby boomers um and i think they're just like grappling with like raising kids and the responsibilities because there's that free love summer and like you know everyone's pregnant Mm. and then it's like oh shit now we have the yeah (laughs) now we all have bad children interesting yeah i i mean i bad kids are around pretty much from the dawn of cinema but it is you're right that these kind of especially like silent moppets insidious i was even thinking about what uh yeah it's very hoosley the omen yeah yeah yeah, yes because they're just kind of like beautiful standing there and you're like and i mean it's telegraphed from the beginning what they're like so yeah it's a very the seeds weird. of clifford are sown <laughs> yes. in flesh for freaking yeah, if they, if they only let clifford uh, be in a old-timey castle maybe a First sequel clifford reference of the season yeah. let's mark it <laughs> episode one uh, to go with the joe delisandro stories i love that udo kier was born and then the hospital was bombed and then his mother dug yeah. out of the rubble with him as a baby like moments yeah. after he was she born, literally was the, like could i have a moment with my baby and the bomb at the hospital so there's nobody with them brutal yeah. but also w- wonderful to his weird character you know um, I love Udo Kier. He is a he's a international treasure. Mm. Um, we should also say there this. is a music video for Madonna called for Deeper, Deeper and Deeper, Deeper, where he's in it. So is Joe D'Alessandro, like a bunch of the Warhol folk who were still around at that point. Yeah, are all in it, which I is kind of nice I, to see. Uh, Udo, the interesting thing to say, which kind of goes into the future, is also like this makes him sort of iconic you know this is an english language crossover and yet it kind of takes the reminiscing about the factory in the early 90s with people like gus van zandt uh, and like Mm -hmm. lars von trier mary to bring him back to to make him what we know now he 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 makes mostly european movies between this and the 90s basically he also would go on i think more so because of blood of blood for dracula playing vampires mm. i mean even into like some like shadowed sure. vampire where i realize he's he's not playing a vampire but he's but he's, he's there you know why he's there yeah yeah yes. he's also got that like ethereal beauty oh yeah right? like that we attribute to dracula and he's, he's always got that, yeah a cold man weirdly in spite of the fact that he seems very warm and silly when you see him talk you know and, and i will say it's very worth digging into just about everyone in this movie because like dahlia de lazaro who just plays the lady monster she like went on to a lot of exploitation stuff people thought she was i think sophia loren's secret sister very interesting <laughs> Mo- monique van voren who plays the baroness mm-hmm. was like a belgian actress but lived in new york uh and then she also like there's a lot of interesting legal issues with her later in life and this is mm-hmm. one of her last roles but she continued to live she just stopped acting which is kind of wild i guess she might have been on broadway i don't know it's it's an interesting film to like dig deep into i i think the casting to paul morrissey's credit because he almost exclusively cast this film is an act of genius mm. um and 
you know, given how many of these people would not have been well known to North American audiences, it he pulls it off really, really well. And I do think for all the bad that Paul Morrissey has you know, revealed in his interviews, um, he really respects actors, which I find is unusual, right? Usually asshole directors think of actors as sheep or dogs or cattle and uh paul not paul morrissey he's he's there for the udo kira performances he was also trying to facilitate things like one of the reasons he had to write the script out was this was supposed to all be improvised but the european actors couldn't do it in whatever in the in english and it was just not they just weren't quick enough so you know that's why he was at every single night okay i'm gonna write you a page here's the next page of the story right again like cannibal girls when you hear all these things you're like you know what you pulled it off pretty good (laughs) like a a Plus, yeah, yeah you didn't lower do a the bad bar job. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. again, it's like yeah. Udo, if Udo did not go on to be who Udo is, you might be like, why the hell did you cast this guy that didn't speak good English other than what he looks like? But I think he's I, perfect in I this. Don't know. <laughs> no, I, he's uh, got star quality. Uh, Udo sure. Kier is a star. He's got star quality. He just can't say the lines. He looks like he looks like a young Nijinsky. Sure. There's a real like ballet quality. Well, you can him. watch. Uh, you can, uh, I'll watch him dubbed in Mark of the Devil, starring Herbert Lom, his other film from around. Then. You enjoy that. I'm also going to make the point that Schwarzenegger's English was not fantastic yeah, when they started they, putting him in film, but there's always something. <laughs> or, they, exactly. or they had him not talk like Robert Allman. So, you know. <laughs> camel. Yeah. All right. I think that's where we should leave this one. So, uh, Cameron Maitland, thank you once again for joining us. Welcome to season four. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm so excited. <laughs> uh, the only other shout out I wanted to give is I forgot to say that uh, fans of the hilarious House of Frightenstein will enjoy that uh, Fishka Ray's. Igor briefly yes. appears in Cannibal Girls, yes. uh, which is cute. Oh, I love it. We're going to have to, I've always wanted to do a podcast about, because there's so many great stories about Hilarious House of Dr. Frightenstein yeah. that I need to do a full podcast just on it a season. I'll see if the CBC wants to do it. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> and Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much once again. It's going to be a good season. I'm very excited for the season. I would like to give a shout out to my friend Hemet, mm. who is the same person that handed out all the Eyes of Laura yes. Mars DVDs as Back calling cards. He he gifted me like the year later um, a full set of original Flesh for Frankenstein uh, lobby Ooh, cards. Ooh, that's a big guy. They gifts. are beautiful because yeah. when I was doing the like research, I was like, "God damn, those are Andy Warhol photographs." Yeah. <laughs> like that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's not bad. So I have like 12, 12 the full set of uh, all in all their glory. So I really should. Get them framed. You, you <laughs> need Thank to you, put, put us in your will, Alicia. <laughs> Pass it along. Are, are you making threats right now? Uh, no, <laughs> just in case. You guys could be in my will. I just don't have anything good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And you can join us in two weeks where we're going to be looking at two very rock and roll versions of is it the greatest story ever told or the second greatest, the story, greatest ever story, told? story ever told? If his birth is the greatest story ever to- told, oh is his death the, the New greatest? Testament? We're looking at I Jesus think... Christ Superstar and Godspell. <laughs> it's the Bible. I believe that's the greatest story ever told is the entire Bible. I wasn't totally clear. This is going to be great. <laughs> and we're going to be joined by Anthony Oliveira, the dumpster raccoon himself. That's coming up in a couple weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs>